0: Well, I had a close call this week, probably like many of you, there are times I can find myself multitasking, and when you multitask, you mess things up a little bit. So my youngest son, who's working with a couple of other young men to sign a lease on a new apartment in Boston, needed my social security number because I got to be a co-signer with him. That'll make you nervous enough, right? You know? So I'm in the midst of everything, and he's at work, and he needs it in a hurry and all that kind of stuff. And so I text him my Social Security number. A few minutes later, like 10 minutes later, he calls me back, and he said, Dad, I I need your Social Security number. I said, well, I sent it to you. He said, I didn't get it. So I'm thinking, well, maybe it just didn't come through his phone yet or whatever. But about 10 minutes later, it dawned on me, he says, I better check my phone. So I had sent my social security number to somebody else because I was in the midst of running around or whatever. And and I'm thinking, who did I send my my social security number to? I'm thinking, I might turn out to be the proud owner of a new yacht and not even want it, you know. (laughs) And I had accidentally sent it to one of our elders. So I think I'm okay. (laughs) I'll let you know in a couple of weeks, a couple of months, right? But, you know, we had that happen to us one time when we were living down in Rockland uh, I was pastor in a church in Hanover. Um, we had, we had a Discover card, and our Discover card bill came in the mail, and it was like one of our typical bills, three or four hundred dollars for gas and this and that and that kind of thing. And then, and we always just paid off at the end of the month. And then, then about a week later, we got another Discover card bill, and it was for like fifty two hundred dollars. You know, and I had like, and that was back when I was paying the bills, so I had like a real heart attack, you know, and, and I started looking at all the stuff that's listed there. It's like a refrigerator that was bought in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and television bought in Philadelphia, and I'm thinking, I thought my wife was going to work during the day. She's been going to Pennsylvania and buying stuff, you know, and then it clearly turned out that somebody else had gotten a hold of our info somehow, and they had taken a card out. In fact, instead of coming out of like the North Carolina office, it was coming out of the Arizona office, you know, with the thing. So I, I got on the phone, I called up Discover and I said, Phoenix, we have a problem, you know, and and to their credit, they took all care of it. They sent us affidavits, we had to sign all this stuff to say it really wasn't us and no weren't our purposes and that kind of stuff. But but we worry about identity theft today, don't we? When I mean, we do a lot of banking online, we do a lot of purchases online, you know, we we, we have social websites that have our birthdays and this and that and our kids and photos and et cetera, And we we worry a lot about identity theft. And we work at it. In fact, people have made businesses out of protecting your identity, haven't they? And that kind of idea. But I got to tell you, you know, as I was processing that experience this week and thinking about the text that we're going to look at this morning, it really struck me that That the idea of identity theft is not just a worldly thing. It's also a spiritual thing. One of the greatest heartaches that I have is that there are many of us who claim to have a personal knowledge of Christ, who claim to have a personal relationship with Christ. And we have allowed ourselves to be robbed of our identity in Christ. Whether it be through personal ignorance or through neglect or through doubt or through distraction or deception or whatever, we, we have allowed ourselves to have our identity, our our worth, our value in Christ just stripped away from us. You know, I, I, it, it, is, it is heartbreaking to me because I care so much for the church, not only Hope Chapel, but the church in large that it, 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 it just breaks my heart when you see statistics that says not all, that the, the behavior of people in the church really isn't all that different than people out in the world. The divorce rate, the sexual ethic that's actually being lived out, you know, their, their, their relationship to material things and what they spend their money on, so there's virtually seems to be no difference at all. But you know, you could carry that a step further, and this is a lot harder to measure but my experience would say that it's pretty much right on target when it comes to things like living with fear being guilt ridden you know of struggling with, with anger having self esteem issues struggling with stress issues and those kinds of things those within inside the church really aren't a whole lot different than those outside the church and i got to tell you that's a tragedy it's an absolute tragedy that we have allowed what God has given us. It, it, it's almost like you and I have just, we've just hacked up this huge water spit in our mouths and just spit right in the face of God and just said, you know what, you, what you did in Christ just isn't all that cool, isn't all that great. Who I am in Christ, I'm just, it doesn't really matter at all. And it's like we've just spit right in the face of God. And we've just let it all go away. And and it's a sad thing. And today I want to start a series in the book of Ephesians. I I think it's helpful for us, and we've been doing, I think it's really great through the course of the year to have some some very strong thematic series that we go through where we can focus in on particular issues or truths like we focused on the practice of prayer and some other things throughout the course of this year as God was calling us to greater things but, but I think it's other times it's just really wonderful to just drop down into a book and be able to put all the pieces together. And the book of Ephesians is a wonderful book for us to study. And, and, and the reason why is because for me, it's not a book that's driven by a problem. You read a lot of the New Testament books, you know, the epistles, they're written to churches or individuals who had problems that the author was trying to solve. You don't see that at all in the book of Ephesians. We, we know that Paul was in prison in Rome when he was writing this letter. He wrote this letter around the same time as he wrote the letter to the church at Colossae and also to Philemon. And he sent it by the, sent all these books by the same messenger. And it's almost like Paul had this idea that, that you know, all right, I'm sending this letter to the Philemon. I'm sending it to, to the church at Colossae to solve that problem, whatever. He says, you know what? This, this is, he's going to land in Ephesus and then have the travel. I ought to send them a letter as well. But let's send them a letter that that really can speak to everybody. And so he writes a letter. And it has a a lot of wonderful themes. But the dominant theme is how God has taken that which is broken and shattered. And he's putting it back together. He's taken the relationship between God and man. And he's showing how he's putting that back together. There's been a, 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 a shattering of the relationship between man and man. Between Jew and Greek slave and free, whatever, God's showing how he's putting that back together. He's showing how we struggle, you know, we're divided within ourselves, the good and the evil, etc. He's showing how he's putting that back together. And, And there's this theme of how God, through his grace and peace, is putting everything back together. And so Paul writes this letter talking about their new standing in Christ and how they're supposed to live that standing out in their everyday lives. And so this letter comes in. And today I want to look at verses... 1 through 14 of chapter 1. Let me read the first couple of verses and make a point, and then we'll read verses 3 through 14 together. Do you know why? Because verses 3 through 14 are one sentence in Greek. Now, Paul turned this in for his English assignment, he'd get an F. Run on sentence, right? That's what it would say. Run on sentence, you know? But verses 3 through 14 are one long sentence. And in verses 1 through 14, and I want you to kind of zero in on this, he's going to use the phrase in him or in Christ 11 times in 14 verses. Now, you're very smart people, so I don't need to tell you that, but that should be a red flag, right? Whenever he's saying in Christ or in him over and over and over again, I think he's trying to get a point across, wouldn't you think? And that's who we are in Christ. So look how he starts. He identifies himself. He says, Paul, and this is on page 993 if you're in one of our Pew Bibles. Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus and through them to all of us, I fully believe that Paul expected this letter to be read in churches all over Asia and literally all over the world as they were started. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. So he identifies himself as Paul, formerly known as Saul. He's an apostle. He's one who's sent. So that means he's under authority, but he also writes with authority He's sent by Christ, and it's God's plan for him to be sent by Christ. Paul identifies himself by his relationship with Christ. Look at the next phrase. To the saints and believers in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. To the saints, those who are set apart and made holy. To the saints and believers, and this is the idea of those who are continuing to trust, they're persevering in their faith in Christ Jesus. He identifies them by their relationship to Christ. Paul is starting out by the, with the idea that you and I, as he and the believers at Ephesus, we should find our identity in Christ. But if we were honest and taking a private poll right now, most of us wouldn't identify ourselves that way. We have lots of other ways of trying to figure out who we are, but really the dominant one, the lead one, the one that shapes all the rest, is not the fact that we are in Christ. We get up in the morning and we say, well, "I put on a few pounds," and so we think fatso. You know, or we get up and we well, a few more gray in the beard. Maybe I should go without a beard. You know, or there's just not as much hair on top, or. I'm the one who's about ready to fail this physics class or whatever. We have lots of other ways of finding out or identifying, trying to shape our identity, but it's not Christ. It's not who we are in Christ. And so as Paul launches into this, he says, God is trying to give you his grace and peace. So grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are two dominant themes that you're going to see over and over again through the book of Ephesians. I'm going to leave some of that for our future study. But now follow along in verses 3 through 14 with me in this one long, ongoing sentence. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens, in Christ. So it's like all of us who, us who are in Christ, it's God's like gone to the cup, you know, to the, to the uh, shelves of heaven, he's grabbed up all the blessings he can possibly get, and he's just like poured them out over the edges of heaven into those who are in Christ. God's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens, and he's done so in Christ. Nothing's held back, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted through Christ Jesus for himself, according to his favor and will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he favored us with in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he planned in him for the administration of the days of fulfillment to bring everything together get that see that theme of reconnecting of bringing back the shattered to bring everything together in the messiah both things in heaven and things on earth in him in him we were also made his inheritance predestined according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will so that we who have already put our hope in the Messiah might bring praise to his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in him when you believed were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the down payment of our inheritance for the redemption of the possession to the praise of His glory. Now, there's a lot of stuff in there. And, and we, we, get, we got 15 minutes left. So I'm going to try to move through this fairly quickly. But what I want to do is I want to identify the seven magnificent blessings that God has given us in Christ. And my hope and prayer is that when you walk out this door this morning, you're not going to go out the person you walked in because you're going to understand just how valuable, precious, resourced, equipped you are and that you should walk out of here with the peace, the power, the purpose, the hope of God defining who you are. I'm not saying your circumstances are going to change, but you're going to change your understanding of who you are in the midst of those circumstances because God said so. So let's work through these seven. The first of those is found in verse 4. These magnificent seven blessings, the very first of those is that God chose you. We're chosen. He picked you. You see the term over here over and over again through this thing. Predestined, chosen, election, those kinds of ideas. I know those of you who have been around the church for a long time and have started to get into some theology. We wrestle with the sovereignty of God and you know how does he predestine and choose and et cetera. And we get into all kinds of questions related to that. You should have some interest in that. It's not the thing, that whether what you believe about that or how you come to your understanding. It's not gonna change whether you're going to heaven or not. But it is important. But here is the bottom fundamental line is that God is sovereign and he always reserves the right to choose. And he chooses in history. He chose Abraham. Could have chose somebody else. He chose Isaac. Right? Not Ishmael. He chose Isaac. He could have chose somebody else. But he didn't. He chose Jacob. He didn't choose Esau. He chose Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. He chose Joseph. Didn't choose the other 11. He chose Joseph. God chooses. And he states in this passage of Scripture that on the playground of eternity... God has picked you to be on his team. M- Remember those days when you were on the playground and you were getting a kickball team or a four-square thing together, or you were trying out for the school play, you know, or you wrote an essay to see if you could be your school's rep to something, or you drew a picture to see if it was good enough to hang on the hallways of the school for a special exhibition or whatever. You know, th- and and you all, you say, I want to be chosen, I want to be chosen. God chose you. He chose you. He chose chose you. He chose me. And with that, you and I have been selected by God. So how does that make you feel that God wanted you, Rob? How does that make you feel? it's, it's, It's powerful stuff. That God, through all that he was doing in history, he's saying all the things that he laid out of Christ, all, he did this all for you. Not that he didn't do it for others, but he did it for you. He did it for all of us. How does that make you feel? How does that change your perspective on what you're going through? That you have been chosen personally by God to, as we see in the next blessing, to be a part of his family. Notice what he says here in verse 40. For he chose us and him before the foundation of the world and He's chosen us to be holy and blameless in His sight. So we can f- come and go without any inhibitions in the presence of God because we're perfect in His eyes. And in love, He predestined us. He, he put a mark on us and He brought us in and He adopted us through Jesus Christ for Himself. You and I have been adopted by God in Jesus Christ. We are full-fledged members of God's royal family. Now adoption here is a Roman practice, not a Jewish one. In the ancient world, the Jews, you know, they had a, a tremendous emphasis on the lineage that came through each branch of the family. And so when an individual died and, and, and there were children left, you or you, 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 you married, like in some cases, like we see with Ruth in the story of Ruth, you marry a, a relative, marries the widow and raises the children in the name of the deceased. But in the Roman culture, it was the other way around. More like the way we practice adoption. When you adopt someone into your family, they become a full-fledged member of your family just like they were born into the family like everyone else. Absolutely no distinction at all legally. And God says he has adopted us in Christ into his family. You have the same standing with God in Christ as Jesus does. How does that make you feel? Now, I, I, one of the blessings I, I had, I've had a privilege, since Hope Chapel started to, to be at a, several different adoption experiences. I was there when the Durbros legally adopted Alexandra, out of and out and said so she became a part of their family. She, she's the only one. She not only got a new. Last name, she got a new first name on the same day. She changed her name. Some of you remember that she went from Olivia to Alexandra. She wanted to change her name. I was there when Michael was adopted. Michael was cute back then. (laughs) Still cute now, in a handsome, rugged kind of way, Michael, right? But I was in a courtroom with them when they adopted Michael, you know, and he got to sit in the judge's chair and hit the gavel and all that kind of good stuff. And I got to be there when Jim and Chris Mason adopted Jacob. That was the very first one i had ever been to. And that one was a little different because it was in the judge's chambers. So uh, we went in and we're just in the judge's office. This was in the old courthouse building. It was really down in the basement, kind of grungy, no windows, et cetera. And the judge said, this is the first time I've ever had a minister be at one of these experiences. And I got a chance to pray with the Masons, just like I would go to the hospital and pray for somebody who just had a brand-new brand baby born. And I've had the privilege of doing that many times over my years. And I remember saying to Jacob, you know, and Jacob was, little. he didn't understand what I'm saying. He said, Jacob, this is the best day of your life because you just got a lot wealthier. You know, because everything that belonged to Jim and Chris is his now. Because he's the only kid they got. And, and he's got absolute legal claim to it as their child. God says he's adopted us into his family in Christ. You're not an off. You're not Cinderella wondering when the clock is going to hit twelve and you're going to turn back into the dirty girl who cleans the floors. You are the prince who gets to sit at the table whenever you want. Now is that a blessing? All right, I thought so. Not only that, he goes on to say. Not only have we been adopted. Through Jesus Christ for himself, for God himself, according to his favor and will, to the praise of his glorious grace. That God is doing this to show just how marvelous he is in his grace. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood. The third blessing is that you and I have been redeemed. We have been retrieved by God and by God alone. Some of you know that Route 140 here in Sterling is called Redemption Rock Trail. And the reason it's called Redemption Rock Trail is that there was actually a redemption that took place on that trail. There was a time, way back when, when the Indians captured the wife of a minister from this area. I think it was from the township of Lancaster, one of the earliest settlements or whatever. And they they held her for ransom. In other words, you're not getting her back until you pay us. And a Bostonian businessman raised the money and out on a rock... In Princeton, just off of Route 140, the ransom was paid, and she was set free. That's why it's called Redemption Rocktail. God has ransomed us free. But here's the emphasis that I I, I really want you to see today. Sometimes we think that we have a role in that redemption, that somehow or another our redemption might somehow be insufficient because we've messed it up. That's not the way it works. God is the one who has done all the redemption. The idea is much more that God has retrieved us from sin and brought us into his family. I've been wearing this wedding ring for just about 30 years. This July, it'll be 30 years. Still got the original one. I've only had it off a couple times in the whole 30 years. I was doing something messy, you know, where I might really mess it up or get paint on or whatever. I've taken it off, but I've never lost it. But imagine if I was taking a shower and... I had lost enough weight, that'd be a miracle, that it actually just slid right off of my finger and it went down the drain. And because the water's running hard enough and whatever, it just carried it right down the pipes, right through the S-trap and right out into the septic tank and it settled to the bottom. And because I'm just so head over heels in love with Christina, I went looking for my wedding ring. So you dig up the septic tank, you take off the The cover, and you stick the thing in there, and you suck it all out, and you're working it, and eventually you find the wedding ring. How much would the wedding wedding ring have to do with being retrieved? Zero, right? It only because of would you go through all the trouble of digging out a small little piece of metal from the bottom of the smelliest thing you could ever stick your head in? The only reason you pull it out is because of the love that you had and what it represents. That's how God's redeemed us. It's not a very cl- good picture, but when you think about sin, it really is like we're at the bottom of the cesspool, right? And God has reached down in there with his hand in the person of Christ and he's pulled us out. And you didn't have a thing to do with it. Zip, zero, zilch, nothing. That redemption is sufficient because God has given it to you in Jesus Christ. Now is that a blessing? Amen. Not only that, he's forgiven you. Look at what he says here. He says, so that in him we have redemption to us, that we have the forgiveness of our trespasses. The imagery here is that all of us have trespassed on God's standards. It's like God has fences around our lives. Okay, this is your thought life. No trespassing past this point. This is your desires. No trespassing through this point. This is your behavior. No trespassing in this point. This is what you say. No trespassing with it. It's like all of us have climbed over the fence and trespassed. And God's willing to forgive us all of that. Away it goes. And really, this forgiveness is all about you and I being completely released to live the new life that God's given us in Jesus Christ. The one he redeemed you for. There's nothing holding you back. God has cut it all loose so you can move forward. I'm not saying that some of the consequences of our our sins don't stay in our lives, but in terms of those, those consequences to be able to hold us back in terms of us experiencing the joy, the love, the peace, the hope, the kindness, the gentleness, the self-control, the things that God's trying to pour into our lives through the presence of the Spirit, they have no ability to hold back what God can do in our lives. We have been released to live the new life that God redeemed us for in the first place, that He chose us for and brought us into His family to be. It's all of it gone. The Scripture says in Psalm 103 verse 12, that as far as the east is from the west, God has removed our trespasses from us. Now, John, you're a pretty smart guy. How far is the east from the west? (laughs) The whole idea is you just can't measure it. The answer I got in the last service was, it depends how many times you go around. (laughs) You know, it just keeps going and going and going, right? It's like God, remember one of the Superman movies, you know, when he's He's playing football, and he just kicks it, and and it goes into the next county, you know? It's like God has just taken our sins, and he's launched it into a whole different galaxy. And there's absolutely no relevance at all to our current experience. God has released us to a brand new life. We've forgiven of our trespasses. We can do life differently than we've done it behalf, behalf, because that's why God has blessed us in the first place. All right. Got to keep moving. Sorry. In addition to that, as you continue to read through in verse 9, he says, he had made known to us the mystery of his will. Now, here's the deal. God has informed us. The mystery has been explained to us. You and I can finally understand what it is that God was doing before creation, in creation, through the fall, through the covenant people, through the cross, and now, we, we, we can see it. We know how it's going to end. We may not know all the particulars to get there and what date's going to happen when, but we know how it's going to end. Now, does that change the outcome? I mean, would, would surgery be all that a bad a thing if you knew that it was absolutely, if you knew that it was going to work out absolutely perfect? I mean, all the fear that goes with surgery is the uncertainty, Right? Is that, you know Because they make you sign a list about like 1,900 things that could go wrong with you, right? How you could land up a vegetable and this and that and all these kinds of things. I mean, if, we, if you took all that out, all you have to go through is just a few days of suffering to feel a whole lot better for the rest of your lifetime. You knew how it was going to change that God's told us how it's going to work out. He has peeled it all back and has explained it to us. And the mystery has been explained. In addition, in verse 11... He's given us an inheritance. Some of your translations could be read like this one as though that he has made us into his inheritance. But what God is saying here is that, that he has he he brought us into a place where we've inherited from him. As God has revealed his mystery to us, he wants you and I to understand that everything that he said about heaven, everything that he said about this life, and the way that not only the good and the bad in our lives are used as a part of him shaping us, working things for good, that all those things are our precious gifts and they cannot be taken from us because we've been given them as an inheritance in Christ. And then lastly, he has given us the Holy Spirit. And Him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and in Him when you believed, you were sealed with the promise, promised Holy Spirit. He's a down payment of our inheritance. And here's, here's how I understand this. The Holy Spirit is God's gift to us so that the life that we're going to inherit starts now. Starts now. You're not going to have it to its fullness, but it starts now. That peace, that purpose, that sense of security, that identity, that strength, that joy, all those kinds of things, it starts now. It doesn't start after you die. It starts now. God's given us the Holy Spirit now as a guarantee, as a deposit to say, this really is yours. Start enjoying it. Yeah, we can go into all kinds of questions about the Holy Spirit and how he's working on God has given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us himself in the person of the third member of the Trinity so that you and I can have that life now. So why is it that if God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, he's chosen us, he's adopted us, he's redeemed us, he's forgiven us, he's informed us, he's, he's given us an incredible inheritance and told us to start enjoying it now. Why is it that we're so beat down, run over, and worn out? Because we've been robbed of our identity in Christ. The key is to be in Him and to live in Him. Verse 13, you've got to be in Him. You've got to hear the word of the gospel and you have to believe. The, actually, the question I have in my notes and your notes is have you been canonized yet? Have you, been, been, have you become one of the saints? They just had a huge experience in St. Peter's Square, right, at, at the Vatican where they named two new saints. I got to tell you, if you have faith in Christ, you're already a saint. told the first saint service, we start calling each other saint. You know, we could, you know, we could have St. Rob and St. Laura and, you know, right on down the line, we'll just call it, maybe we'll get used to it after because we really are saints in Christ. But the question is, have you been canonized? Have you let God bring you into the fold and give you these blessings? And that takes a personal choice of faith. You can do that today. You've got to be in him. And then you've got to live in him. Are you living as a saint? And if you're not, why not? Don't let anybody deceive you. Don't let doubts rob you. Don't let guilt or fear or anything overwhelm you. Don't get distracted and the blessings that God has piled up in his arms and poured over the edges of heaven into you, in Christ. Because you really are in him. Let's pray together. You know, Father, Jesus said that if he'd be lifted up, he'd draw all men to him. I know that's it's a reference to the cross. I also know it's a reference in the way that he's lifted up in our lives. As we are in him, we lift him up. God, I think there's many ways in which the world looks at those of us who are in him, and they really don't see these blessings. They don't see a people who are living as though they've been chosen by the supreme commander of the universe to be theirs personally. They've been given a new last name to be a part of his family. People have been brought back from the brink at God's own effort, released from everything that bound them to the past so they can might, start living the future now. God, make us that people and let us know the joy being those people as we are blessed in you in Jesus name we pray